Lab talk with Laura. Listen, I implore ya. Won't never bore ya. Lab talk with Laura. Always more in story. Lab talk with Laura. Welcome to Lab Talk with Laura. Today we have a very special episode all about OSTEM. This is a group on campus that I'm a member of. It's out in STEM. Um, and my guests today are Sam Marzin, uh, Robin Zollner, and Sankit Savnas. Uh, my co-host is Taylor Ortiz. Uh, so Sam Marzin is an undergrad chemical engineering uh, sophomore and the current president of OSTEM. Hi. Um, he's originally from Greenfield, Massachusetts. Um, and his, he's done research that investigates the interfacial surface tension for polymers with dual properties. Okay, we'll dive into that. <laughs> um, Robin is an undergraduate chemical engineering major, um, graduate, uh, currently a graduating senior, um, and also the logistics chairperson of the 2018 OSEM National Conference. Um, he is originally from the Mid-Hudson Valley uh, in New York State, has a bachelor's of science in chemical engineering, very soon, yeah. <laughs> very, very soon, and has studied the effect of uh, salt types and concentrations in a two-liquid phase aqueous polymer system. Okay, oh. again, more, <laughs> lots to dive into. Um, Sankit Savnes is a fourth-year PhD student in chemical engineering um, and current graduate liaison for OSEM. Um, he's originally from Mumbai, India, has a bachelor's in chemical engineering, and currently works on exfoliating zeolites into 2D nanosheets for gas separation applications. Cool. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, everybody. Thank, Thank you. you. Taylor Ortiz um, is a student at Hampshire College and currently a member of the sketch comedy group Felt Waffle. Thanks for joining us, Taylor. Yeah, of course. I'm actually a uh, hashtag college dropout. So. Oh, really? No, did you drop no out longer. of Hampshire? I did. I dropped out of Hampshire. You know, I've always wanted to be like one of the orchestra members on the Titanic, but I figured this wasn't my Titanic. You know what I mean? <laughs> Do you, this is about um, the current state of Hampshire College, I'm guessing. <laughs> What's going on with Hampshire, actually? Um, if you've ever seen a dumpster fire, it's like that, but grosser. They just dropped like a couple of weeks ago an email saying that they're cutting 45% of like the staffing budget. So that's like half of our professors gone. Oh my god! Like wow. right away. Right away. Yeah. Next year, half our professors. Wow. They're like. That's terrible. They're looking into like what, uh, basically like, where most people are applying class-wise, and they're going to keep those sections of professors, and the rest of us can just forget about like having professors that we Yikes. like. So like a bunch of people like, the organization system of Hampshire, you have uh, a committee which is two to three professors. So a lot of kids that are trying to graduate just won't have their committee anymore. Damn. Did the president resign? Too? Oh, yeah, she resigned <laughs> hardcore. She's like, I'm out. We literally, like, the, the students and the faculty sent a group letter to the president basically being like, would you mind not anymore? And she was like, okay, yeah, bye. <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you see the, the power the students have in that one way. Yeah, well, I mean, they've been occupying her office for like 77 days or something like oh, that. Oh, really? It's Just like students wow. living in her office. Oh, my goodness. Like, if you go in there, it's like, it's a headquarters for like a campaign. Like they've taken all the rooms and made them into living spaces. And there's like blankets everywhere. And just kids with like different colored hair and a bunch of piercings just like sleeping in there. Oh my God. It's very Hampshire. Wow. 
Okay. Well, thank you for the update. <laughs> yeah, of course. I'm going to pivot away from yeah, that. Yeah, no, let's talk about and talk polymers. about a thriving organization, um, <laughs> which is OSTEM at UMass. Um, yeah. So, yeah, if you maybe could start and just, like, tell us about OSTEM at UMass. So, yeah, OSTEM at UMass is the queer organization in STEM, out in STEM at UMass. Do you <laughs> yeah. want to jump in as the founder? Sure, yeah. So... Uh, when I was a so end of my sophomore year, so I met up with Phoebe and the other founder, and we looked at each other and said, "There's got to be other queers in science. They, we know they exist. We've looked at, <coughs> but where are they? We can't see them." So, and we also worked with uh, Paula Reese, the the diversity chairperson in the engineering department, and she said, "Yeah, go for it. Go have fun. Start it." And, it sort of has it it has become a community it's been a place where stem students can go find other science students who are also queer and therefore have innately a similar experience that is disjoint from our gay friends and our stem friends because yeah. like before OSTEM happened there was really a place where i went to work i went to classes and i tried to hide my queer side because I needed to work and I needed to be able to get along with a lot of cishet men who may or may not have the queer vocabulary to understand what's going on. And then I went home, I lived at the, on the queer floor at the time, to my queer life and people who didn't really necessarily want to hear about how cool my graphs were. <laughs> <laughs> nice. And like the first couple years of OSTEM, it was small, it, it was, was very right. small. But like the community has grown a lot, especially in like the past year. Because yeah. we've had a huge surge of like incoming students that are just interested in joining the community. So we've had a lot of like really active members really recently. So the community is really building up. Nice. Yeah, I'm really proud of seeing all of my kids. <laughs> I guess I've adopted a Phoebe term. <laughs> just growing up and uh, coming and being really active, really successful in their academics and really cool about putting on things that they care about and really supporting each other, like, it was really, it was really cool to see this happen. Yeah. yeah. The first time I learned about OSTEM was when I was in my second year of PhD and I was TAing for a class that Robin and Phoebe were taking. <laughs> oh, okay. And I learned about it from them. And I attended a general body meeting then, which was just like four or five people. And it was really small and we weren't doing a lot of activities then, but the general body meeting um, last September, uh, when I went in there, the room was fully packed with like some 40 people. And I was like, wow, this, that's, that's like a lot of people. So as Sam said, the community's grown uh, a lot in the past year and that's great. Nice. Yeah, I think it really goes to show that having a visible place where we can go find each other shows that it will grow. We have the capacity to have the people in it. It just really was a question of people knowing about it. So what year is it now? I guess this is in its third year third or year. so. Or, right on. Yeah. Nice. So, um, yeah, as scientists, like, in school, we're all really busy. So, yeah. so how, I guess, like, what makes it worthwhile to you to, like, take the time to put into this organization? As far as graduate students are concerned, my department doesn't have any other queer graduate students. Uh, well, that's bad. Uh, and I also always work in spaces which are very heteronormative. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's very important for me to find support from other graduate and under undergraduate students who identify themselves as queer. And therefore, going to OSTEM 
uh, and participating in the OSTEM events is like a support or like a booster for me, uh, like charges me up. Yeah. yeah. And also like from an undergrad perspective, seeing that you are a graduate student, you are finding success in your field and doing really cool research and also existing, being out as gay and being unapologetically yourself was really encouraging for me and others to be able to like realize that it's okay I'm allowed to be flamboyantly queer and also succeed in STEM. Yeah I think representation is all that everyone is looking for and like OSTEM's providing representation to each each one of us and like to everyone as a community I guess. Yeah. Kind of going off of that one of my favorite like events that we do in OSTEM is a professor panel Mm. where we get some out professors at UMass in STEM and we just kind of sit down, they tell us their story with like how they got to where they are, how their identity affected, like how they got here, just their entire story so that we can relate, we can really kind of learn from their experiences and get that representation. Yeah, it's kind of hard to envision yourself in a career where you see nobody who like yeah. looks or seems like you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and while there may be, I, yeah, I guess, how, how has that been like finding out professors? Has that been challenging? So, <laughs> <laughs> there's a funny story with one of the professors that I uh, frequently. Um, we didn't know if she was queer or not. <laughs> And so I was in her class, so I like went to her office hours, and it was, I think it was kind of close to an exam, so there were a couple other people in the office hours, and I was just like, hi, can I speak to you alone for a moment? And she got like super worried, like, is something wrong? Like, yeah. Do you need to tell me something really important? I was just like, so I'm in OSTEM, <laughs> and I was wondering, would you want to talk at our event? <laughs> and she was just like, was silent for a little moment, and she was just like, how did you know? <laughs> so, and you were like, I'm a scientist. <laughs> more or less. <laughs> You're like, we talk. <laughs> we gather data. <laughs> <laughs> so how did she feel about that she was really open to it okay. like when she figured out that we were a thing so <laughs> yeah she like mentioned that like after the professor panel she was just like if you want to know some other out professors I will probably know more than you guys will so if you want just like shoot me an email and I'll show you who's actually queer in STEM right nice yeah it was interesting is once you find one queer professor you always find more because uh -huh. While they may not be as obviously visible to students, there's, I found even in before college and in high school or whatever, there's always an undercurrent of queers find each other. Mm -hmm. So queer professors find each other in the same way queer students find each other. But I think the special thing that OSEM has is making it so that we can all see each other. Right. Especially across social groups that may not otherwise be interacting. Right. So while well, you had this like unofficial like socializing of queer professors, maybe the students aren't yeah. aware of like when you make that into an official organization, then you have visibility, right? Yeah. And you can actually find the people who maybe aren't tapping into that channel that where people are just finding each other other ways. There's actually kind of a problem we have with that because like there is like a queer connection of professors on campus, but pretty much that community of queer professors that like stick around together is pretty much all female. Uh -huh. Yeah, interesting. So we have very few like 
out male professors mm. that we know of. Right. Yeah. And <laughs> that is also definitely unfortunate. Yeah. I, th- I feel like there's like a weird amount of stigma about being like a, a cis man and being like out. Like I know I, this is very different, but I'm also uh, I'm in the Army Reserves, and it's significantly easier for somebody who identifies as a woman to be gay because that almost makes them like, oh, she's one of the boys. You know what I mean? Like, oh, this is awesome. And then like um, a man being gay is seen as like an outlier, like a lot more different. I think, mm. and I, I could totally yeah. see that also being the case in academia. I feel like the structure and the hierarchy is really similar, and the pressures are really similar to like put on like your like your like customer service voice and, yeah. and be like you know straight presenting whenever you're mm-hmm. in a professional mm-hmm. setting. I don't know if that's. Yeah. There was an interesting thing that Phoebe and I talked about a bunch, especially before OSEM sort of blossomed into a lot more people. Because when it was mostly the two of us, we didn't have a lot of contact with cis gay men. So we were sort of at a loss as to what that experience looked like. So what happened was Phoebe's experiencing of being gay in chemical engineering was that she experienced like the mild homophobia from cis het women where like they weren't sure how to interact with her, but she was completely like broing out with the cis het men. Mm. And then as a clearly queer presenting man, I had the opposite experience where straight women seemed to have no problem interacting with me. They laugh, it was great. But then I didn't, straight men seemed to not know how to interact with me. And we weren't really sure what the, where the thing is, but then once we started talking to other queer men in chemical engineering, we found that I was having the very typical queer men experience mm. of, in chemical engineering, or. <clears throat> in a male-dominated field or whatever. Yeah, yeah even I found the same thing. Like, cis-head women have, are very uh, comfortable interacting with me, but cis-head men find it difficult to get that connection. Going. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I feel like there's been a big push in general in science to um, improve diversity. You know, diversity mm-hmm. of all types is a problem in science. Um, and And... Part of that has been this push to be able to be yourself in sciences, where we have this kind of idea of what a scientist is and their objective, and they have no personal experiences that they're bringing to the table, by which I mean, of course, cis, het, white men. <laughs> like, yeah. that's what we all treat as, like, some objective reality, even though it's actually a subjective reality. Um, but I guess, like, maybe you can speak on the importance of being able to be out in your work environment, which for us is school. Um, like, what does that mean for being able to, like, do your work well? So I think it's important because it's important for us to be here advocating for the community because there are also people, like, in the community, not in the OSTEM community, but, like, in the STEM community, like, actively advocating against it. Like, yes. there are definitely professors on campus who do not want to see positive core representation and think that learning about pronouns is BS and don't understand why they need to learn about any of this and will actively treat male and female students differently and... And walk around Campus Center with a MAGA hat on. Yes. And it's just... We need to be able to at least have a force to say that that is not the only model that exists. Mm-hmm. Um, I know... In my personal experience, being ha- having to be out, it was there was a while where I was felt hyper visible 
because of the fact that I was transitioning. I came into college, I was not out. I went by a different name, different pronouns. Mm. And well, eventually I found out that I certainly was not alone and I found a lot of commonalities. At first it felt very alienating because I didn't know if anybody else had any remotely similar experience. I didn't know who to go to for help. I didn't know whether or not I even wanted to leave my room because I didn't want to look at myself in the mirror, let alone some other people. And that's a very common like trans experience. But what was really powerful about being out and then of course seeing OSTEM was seeing that <clears throat> my experience as a trans person but also my experience as a queer person in STEM is not alone and I'm allowed to do it and I can do it successfully and I will have friends also what's especially important about STEM especially is just like we need differing points of view mm -hmm. right. like if everyone has the same background the same story the same mindset that's going to negatively affect research yeah. So if we have differing backgrounds, if we have differing points of view and differing identities, we get that better research from different perspectives. Yeah, and yeah, in even the corporate setting has come to be come around to say that mm -hmm. like we want people with different backgrounds because people with different backgrounds will be able to challenge each other and see each other's mistakes. If you only have people from UMass Amherst working for you at a company, they're only going to see what UMass taught them, and they're not going to see the failings of their own background, and they will miss something somebody of a different background might see. Yeah. So, but the thing is, is they recognize that that's important for <clears throat> educational institution, gender, sexuality, race, like whatever their identity is, everybody has their own mix, and if you have a, the largest mix of different ones, you'll be able to see people seeing different things. Yeah. Uh, being out is important for me as far as representation is concerned because there's so less representation of uh, queer people in STEM, especially in engineering. And yes. um, I also like to highlight that, especially for grad students, like being, as you said, mentioned, being human in science is very important. And uh, I find that as grad students, uh, we are considered to be like machines, mm -hmm. like being productive, but uh, being queer, uh, queer people have their own experiences. So, and they come into play while being a grad student and doing research, and they require different mentorship than uh, non-queer people. And I think it's very important for professors and people in general to realize this. Um, yes. Yeah, that's actually really interesting because like I know I I personally have never had an experience with a professor where I could just have a conversation about their like queer mm -hmm. identity. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's really cool that you guys have kind of created the space where like mentors that are queer that could help you navigate like specifically your field and also specifically your field with your identity. Like that's that's so cool. You guys have done that for all these people. So, did all of you go to the OSTEM conference last fall? Yes. 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 <laughs> Do you want to talk about like that experience going to that conference? Yes. I, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I'll let them go. So I'll let them go first. I had a slightly oh. different experience. Uh, okay. Robin could go first. Oh, okay. So, um, I was on the logistics committee. I was helping to plan the entire conference. So. It was a much different experience, but I got a, I got a chance to basically work with and lead a team of really talented engineers, all of whom were queer identified, and queer engineers, scientists, STEM professionals, everything. And we put 
pulled off. We put together a conference in Texas. We were all across the country, so we had to all like use like Slack and Google Hangouts, etc., in order to be able to connect because there was no central office. We were across the nation mm. to figure out how to plan. <clears throat> planned this conference that was in Texas in a hotel. We had to put, figure out what food was going to be there, what the <clears throat> uh, schedule is going to look like, how we're going to make sure we have resume, rooms reserved, uh, how we're going to get people to and from airports, what kind of security measures are going to be, et cetera, et cetera. So like, my experience there was, one, being able to just all of a sudden had a whole bunch of responsibility I didn't think I deserved thrown on me, and mm -hmm. somehow it happened. Uh, but it was also really rewarding just to be able to see like my OSTEM chapter and then also all of these people come together and just have like, it's just an overwhelmingly positive experience to be able just to, see, even as an attendee, which I went to in 2017, uh, it's just an overwhelmingly positive experience to just finally see somebody else who gets it mm -hmm. and seeing people come together, <clears throat> being able to have a safe place to actually possibly drink or not drink or just party because you're not worried that some cishet is going to go make some perverse comment. And mm. so it's just like very powerful to see so many mentorship groups happening and see it all happen. And then, of course, I was sort of putting out fires the entire time and okay. barely slept, but that was... <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I ended up getting a job out of that, though. So do you know how many people total went to the conference? Yeah, so it was just under 800 people went. Oh, wow. I think it was like the final number came out to be something around 760. Nice. Yeah, I think uh, going to the OSTEM conference was the best decision that I made. Mm -hmm. uh, it was uh, amazing, and uh, there were a lot of workshops. Uh, for like specific groups, there was a workshop for queer people of color. There were like more workshops uh, aimed at very specific issues and specific groups. That was awesome, and just in general, just to see an only queer space of all queer people in STEM was, as Robin said, it was really overwhelming, and everyone was so accepting, and um, we could talk about whatever we want to, not having to worry about being judged, people were talking, so the speeches that were made on the stage were really empowering, I mm. feel, um, and you wouldn't get to hear speeches like that elsewhere, and um, I think just queer people are awesome, and they are, that's what I realized. We're all nodding. <laughs> yeah, queer people are awesome. We're all a little biased. <laughs> I thought maybe we could transition to talking about the research that everybody does. Maybe we could start with Sam. All right, sure. Uh, tell us about your research. So I work in the HIP materials lab, which is harnessing interfacial phenomena. So we work with Janus particles, which are particles that are partially properties of one kind of particle, partially properties of another kind. So we can make a particle that's like half hydrophobic, half hydrophilic. So I specifically am working on a Janus particle that's half hydrophilic, half ambiphilic, which means they're attracted, or they attract both water particles and oil particles. Okay, ambiphilic is yep. attracts oil and hydrophilic is attracts water? Yep. Okay. So I am specifically looking at 
the interfaces of our concentrated solutions, so just how the surface tension will change and whether like a film of particles will form around a droplet, so stuff like that. Okay, so I just learned about these somewhere else, Janus particles, is this, so wait, are you all in polymer science, is that correct? I'm not. You're not, oh, okay. I also am not in polymer science. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. That's why I'm confused about the what research I did was related to polymers, but okay. it's more closer to polymer processing. Okay. You're in chemical engineering. Yes. I yeah. sometimes in my head blend them, but I oh. shouldn't do we that. We actually like, all are in chemical engineering, but yeah. I yeah. think Sam and Robin's research has to do a little bit on the polymer side. Oh, okay. Yeah, gotcha. There isn't a polymer science undergrad program at uh, UMass. Okay. So, so a lot of undergraduates do research with the polymer science school because it is very related uh -huh. and sometimes more interesting or easier to get into labs over in, comp in Conte because uh -huh. they lack undergrads and we want positions. Okay. Also, cool. polymer science at UMass is like one of the best polymer science programs like in the country. Yeah. So. Yeah. And um, they fund online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura. <laughs> so awesome. I'm a fan too. Yeah. <laughs> um, but cool. So Janus particles. Yeah. So is that Janus like the like is it the like god. a Greek god or a Roman god? Roman god. With like two faces. Mm -hmm. So that's the idea is like one side of the particle is doing this other one thing and the other side's doing another thing. And they've definitely been growing in relevance. I went to a seminar earlier this semester. A professor from NYU also does Janus particle research. And he said that the majority of Janus particle research so far has just been simulations. So like most of the people actually working on Janus particles don't know how they'll act in the real world. And that's also kind of something I'm looking into. Okay. So okay. you're like a pioneer. More or less, yes. <laughs> are you actually doing like experimental like lab research or are you doing modeling? Yeah, so I'm doing actual lab research, oh, awesome. and actually this summer I'm specifically working on synthesizing Janus particles to see how they'll change when we do different things to them. Oh, that's way cool. Awesome. Yeah. Are there practical applications for Janus particles, or is yeah, it just research? Yeah, so what we originally started off with with my research was just kind of if we can get a film to form, we can figure out how quickly we can get a film to form and eventually possibly do like in an aqueous solution 3D printing. So it's has potential resources, not resources. Applications? Applications, that's the word that could come into use later, but right now it is mostly research. Okay, so there's like a lot of ideas about how yes. these could be useful, Yeah. but that's kind of, so, it makes me think of water. So like when I studied chemistry in high school, you know, they taught us like water is like a not a symmetrical molecule. Like one side of it has the hydrogens and one has the oxygen and therefore yeah. like one side has a positive charge and one side has a negative charge and that causes it to do cool things. Yes. Um, I don't know if Janus particles, if, if that's like an ana a good analogy for thinking about Janus particles, like, I or. Mean, it can be, the like seminar I went to earlier, he, made it so that half of the particles could bond with these like DNA particles that you could then use the DNA to organize the models of the molecules so they would self-assemble into different orientations. So we can use this like Janus particle property to have really cool effects. Hmm. 
So what's the process of like working in the lab like? Like what do you yeah. actually do so <laughs> when you go into work? For me, mostly I like have a solution. I sonicate it, which means I just kind of let it vibrate in water <laughs> for like 20 minutes. Okay, like that toothbrush, Sonicare? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Would you consider yourself to be a sonic youth? <laughs> Absolutely. You can cut that. That was garbage. <laughs> I kind of shake up the particles for a little bit. And then I have this machine, a goniometer, which I have, I insert a needle that kind of overhangs and I have a little cuvette where I fill it with a solution of right now I'm using water. And I just have a concentrated polymer solution at the bottom and I have a hexadecane drop from the needle. And I put the drop into the cuvette and I let it sit in the polymer solution for a little bit and then I take it up and see if any polymers attached to the hexadecane interface. Okay, so that's the that's like this experiment where you're trying to yeah. create that Janus particle. Yeah. What is hexadecane? Hexadecane is just a long chain of 16 carbons and 34 hydrogens. Oh, that's it. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really feel like last time I was here, we were talking about like penguins and stuff <laughs> and like climate change, and it was kind of like. Yeah, I could be a scientist. <laughs> yeah, I didn't realize that you guys are just speaking a different language. <laughs> like you're saying, so, yeah, it's like a different kind of 3D printing. It's like Equus, and I'm like, oh, like Daniel Radcliffe's going to get naked? Or? <laughs> like, I am out of my depth here. I really thought I was smart until we closed this door. You can feel free to interrupt at any time to be like, explain that. No, because I feel like I would do it every other word. <laughs> and like, we're in this community community so much we don't even realize that, like oh yeah that's not something that everyone deals with. <laughs> yeah. do you guys find yourself code switching uh like when you're at ostem between like queer like kind of like uh language and like stem language or is it kind of like merged together at this point i think that there are sort of three different codes that we have got to be able to switch <coughs> between there's the queer code where like you talk about you use the language you would use with typical queer people mm -hmm. Then there's the serious scientist mode that you've got to be able to talk with professors and like your straight peers. And then there's a uniquely new one that queer STEM people use. And I don't know how to describe it, I guess, but it's just more where we say things like NASA's gay. Right. I mean, that's indisputable, but. There are a surprisingly large amount of gay puns you can do with just like pure science. Yes. <laughs> Can you do one for a hexadecimal? <laughs> that one, I don't think I can think of one. But. But, I don't know. I guess my favorite intersection thing where it only makes sense to a queer science crowd is describing your identity with a <clears throat> in the context of the real plane of, and what, like, how many dimensions you want to think about, so, or in the context of, like, RGB sliders. So, like, okay, attraction to men, attraction to women, feeling of masculinity, feeling of femininity, whatever. Okay, so each one has a zero to one scale. Where do you fit yourself? Mm -hmm. And then we can map that onto a <coughs> coordinate system of n dimensions. <laughs> nice. It's a queered science. <laughs> You're listening to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. My guests today are Sam Marsden, Robin Zollner, and Sankit Savnas from the OSTEM chapter at UMass Amherst. And my co-host is comedian Taylor Ortiz. You can find Lab Talk with Laura on social media. Uh, we're on Twitter, on Facebook, SoundCloud, iTunes, and anywhere else you listen to podcasts. Okay, jumping back into it. 
So how did you end up um, like in that field then? Yeah, so I've always wanted to be a scientist. Okay. That's just something I've always wanted to do. When I was really young, I wanted to be a zoologist. <laughs> okay. And then I realized I don't actually like biology at all. Okay. So Why not? <laughs> and, and it just doesn't work. I don't like it. I don't like cells. Yeah. Cells are just not me. I don't like biology also. I so. also I also yeah. don't like biology. Because <laughs> I found it too messy, which is ironic, because I then ended up in geology, which is definitely, maybe maybe not. There's fewer, like, ethical quandaries that you wander into with geology, like rocks. Is it ethical to kill this rock if it's for science? <laughs> <laughs> Those rocks have been long dead. <laughs> but, okay, sorry, we got you out. So I've always wanted to be a scientist. Uh, in high school, a group actually from UMass like from UMass Polymer Science came to my high school and like did a little demo on what polymer science can do and I kind of fell in love there. Nice. So I also loved AP Chemistry and AP Calculus so I was like I guess I'll go into chemical engineering because also I can easily switch out of engineering I can't easily switch into engineering. Okay yeah. So but the engineering program's around. really like strict and preset yeah, so it's hard to it's, the curriculum into. is very rigid. Yeah. They don't like their students. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's cool, though. I really like that, um, like, an outreach event was yeah. helped you find that department. Definitely, That's cool. Yeah. Cool. Maybe we should talk to Robin about your okay. research. Okay. <laughs> do you want to just tell us what you do? Sure. So I will give the disclaimer that it's been a couple of years since I've actively been working in my research lab okay, because yeah. OSTEM became a priority for me. Nice. Uh, actually, specifically planning that conference was a place for me to stop research because I was like, well, this isn't as much work as research. Yeah. Uh, so when I was in the lab, I was studying a <clears throat> phenomenon called coacervation, which is a two-phase liquid phase separation. Uh, what that means is like you'll have a polymer phase, and uh, it'll look sort of like there's oil droplets in water. Okay. But in fact, rather than oil droplets, they're polymer droplets. Okay. And they're made up of a positive polymer and a negative polymer that come together in solution because positive likes negative. Mm -hmm. And depending on the amount of salt that you also have in this solution, it'll go from being a solid to a liquid to a single phase solution. And what I, was, what I was specifically doing in lab was looking at different types of salt and different concentrations of salt and how I could more easily process this in like a larger size volume. Like I wanted to be able to make like a 20 milliliters of coacervate solution rather of like the polymer piece of it, which is what we refer to as the coacervate. Wait, can you say that word slower? Uh, okay, coacervate. C O A C E R V A T E. Coacervate. Okay. Yeah. So the dense phase, so the dense polymer phase, which is what I'm referring to as the coacervate phase. Okay. Is useful because it can be used as a coating or an encapsulation, or used at yeah. So it's usually used as a coating or encapsulation, or it can be electrospun. So that's what's useful. And what I was trying to do is figuring out how can I make it in bulk because I had, it had previously been more made in very small quantities, and if you want to use it, you want to make it in larger quantities. And I was just uh, perfecting, I was just sort of fine-tuning a process that was already made, but I switched it out from one kind of salt to another kind of salt and okay. took away the addition of heat. 
Okay. Can you maybe expand on what those like uses are? Okay. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> um, so there's one piece of it is the biological aspect of it, okay. where you wouldn't be using the same. There, you can use any positive and any negative polymer. So the biological aspect would be using uh, a negative. We use uh, amino acid chains as our peptide chains as our biological polymers that we use, or polyglycine and polyglute uh, polylysine and polyglutamic acid. Um, so with that, you put them in solution together, and they will encapsulate a protein. A protein, in the context that we're looking at, is just a charged glob that is a load. Okay. There's lots of charges on it, and it can be covered. So if you want to think about it, the polymer strands will kind of go over and go around the polymer glo the protein glob. Okay. And it will prevent it from being like thermosensitive. So one project that one PhD student is doing is when you encapsulate it or these polymers are surrounding the polymer, it will protect the charges and it will be not need refrigeration. And that has some incredible impact. Okay. So it's like an insulation agent? So it's, uh, it's more on the chemical level. It's not insulating like a wrapper, but it's like the polymer itself is, the, yeah, so the quasiver itself is sort of just surrounding the protein. Okay. And when I say that it doesn't need refrigeration, that means you can encapsulate a vaccine in these polymers. Oh. And all okay. of a sudden, they will release in the blood, in the body, because of a pH trigger or salt concentration trigger, but they can exist in warm temperatures without denaturing. Okay. Um, so uh, denaturing is just like breaking down breaking and down. not being useful. So, yeah. are, so vaccines are made of proteins, or am I, maybe I'm trying to Yeah, so, uh, I'm pretty sure their vaccines are made out of dead, uh, dead and weakened viruses, okay. and viruses that their nature have proteins in them. So okay. the thing is, is we were currently we're using proteins as a load, but you can use something larger like uh, a vaccine okay. or a cool. virus molecule. Straying into biology here. Oh, yeah, no. so it's a little bit dangerous for me to talk about this. Um, there are other applications. And remember, Robin said earlier he does not like biology. Yeah, so this is why I'm really hesitant to go more detail in that particular application. I actually know about vaccines because I just listened to a podcast about Andrew Waller, <laughs> the guy who originally was the doctor that was like, Vaccines cause autism. Oh. Yeah, and wow. just like talking about like, apparently originally, I'm not going to go into detail about vaccines because I'm not a scientist and I'm surrounded by them, uh, but apparently originally <laughs> vaccines, uh, like the first vaccines were literally just crushed up um, uh, like sores from people who got um, um, smallpox. They would crush up the sores and then they would like make you eat or like snort them. Oh, and it was literally so like, it wasn't even like a doctor who figured it out. It was this guy who grew up on a dairy farm and he realized that like the dairy maids, like the milkmaids, wouldn't get smallpox, but they would have these scars on their hands. And he was like, what's up with that? And they were like, oh, it's cowpox. You get cowpox if you work with cows. But if you get cowpox, you don't get smallpox. So the scars are fine. And he basically just figured out that because it was a lesser, like it was a less deadly virus mm -hmm. to humans because it was specifically for cows, 
but it was similar enough to smallpox that it built an immunity to smallpox. And so he was just so like, cool. what if we just crush some of this stuff up and snort it? Uh, and now it's, it, we're, we're making special goo for it. So, you know, it's come a long way. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes good things happen when you just snort random stuff. That's what I've been saying this whole time. Like, I might not be sometimes. a scientist, but I put a bunch of stuff in my nose. You know what I mean? Once in a while. Like, go up. Yeah. 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 So other cool applications of this material actually can be used in, like, a paint that is not organic soluble or water soluble. Okay. So it's a coating that if you splash some organic solvent, such as acetone, hexanes, isopropyl alcohol, whatever, what gives you, it will not dissolve because it's not organic soluble. But it's also not water soluble because the only, because it's solvent is actually salt. So companies like BASF have been interested in this because it has just a range of applications because what company wouldn't want something that's a coating that's impervious to solvents. Mm, yeah. How did you get into this area of science? Um, so my first semester, freshman year, I knew that, well, specific, this is specifically into this lab, and then I'll mm-hmm. go into how I chose chemi. Okay. But I was reading up, and all of the online blogs or how-to guides on what to do in college said, get yourself into a lab. So first day of freshman year, I walked up to her and said, I'm interested in your research, and I have no idea what I want to do yet, and... She took a chance on me, and I don't know why, but... Wow, you were really on top of it. it never... I was on top of it, and then I wasn't, but that's okay. <laughs> I actually also got into lab research kind of a similar way, yeah. where I was like, oh, I need to join a lab if I want to be successful. And so, like, the first semester, they had, like, several professors come in and present their research, and I found one that was just like, hey, I really like your research, would you care if I joined your lab? And she's just like, yeah, we'd love to have you. Like, we're constantly looking for undergrads, so. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, so that's how I got into that specific piece of research, and I'm just really lucky that I ended up matching up with Sarah. We clicked really well, and even though I didn't go on to be a master in her field, I she's become an invaluable mentor to me. She's even also my academic advisor. And then I chose chemical engineering because in high school, much the same as Sam, I loved AP chemistry. I was really good at that. I liked AP calculus. (laughs) I mean, I also was that kid who, like, made a cabbage pH meter in jars because I could. (laughs) How do you do that? So you, you... you need cabbage juice, so red cabbage juice. So you take a red cabbage and you soak it in water for a while, and then you've got this... You can juice it and then mix it with water, and then you've got this red cabbage juice. And then you pour stuff in it. So, like, soap, lemon juice, vinegar, etc. And it'll turn various colors based on the pH. Oh my goodness, I had no idea. You should make an Ostom event about that. That would be so fun. I did did not know this either. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Chemistry in your kitchen. That would be a really fun outreach event, too. Actually, sometimes I wonder why people even bother paying for those, like, pH... (laughs) <laughs> You're like, just buy some cabbage. Yeah, just buy some red cabbage. <laughs> right on. Maybe we'll switch and talk to Zanka about his good. research. His stuff is cool. Okay, so I work with these materials called azeolites, and they are basically crystalline materials, and they have pores of a particular size all throughout them. Uh, different zeolites will have pores of different sizes. 
and what these pores can be used for is to separate molecules the molecules that are larger than the pores won't pass through the molecules that are smaller than the pore would pass through and I could use the zeolites therefore to separate two molecules um, and use them in industry for various kind of separations which right now are done using processes like distillation where you separate them based on their boiling points. Um, such processes which are there in industry currently in the place use a lot of energy mm -hmm. and we want to switch to membranes because membranes do the same job more efficiently and we could save on energy and we want to make all the processes as energy efficient as possible as we go into the future. Uh, so we want to use zeolites for making these membranes and um, these zeolites are three-dimensional um, solids and I was presenting at the research art science exhibit at UMass the other day where I had my research titled in a image called flower and petals. So a 3D zeolite would actually exactly look like a rose or a flower like that and what I want to make membranes what I need to make membranes is the petals of these flowers this flower um, so I need the thin sheets because I can't make membranes using the flower itself uh, I need thin sheets to make the membrane so what I basically do is take this zeolite flower and break it into petals which I call as nano sheets which are only two nanometer thick um, and these nano sheets again have those pores which are characteristic of the original zeolite so these nano sheets can help me separate molecules based on the size of the pores um, what would be done is make a membrane using these nano sheets overla overlap each other uh, and uh, these membranes could in future if made um, if fabricated uh, economically would in future replace the current process uh, separation processes in industry and we could have more energy efficient processes nice so where did the zeolites come from uh, zeolites are molecules like you are a geologist and geologists also know about zeolites because they are also found in nature okay. uh, as minerals. Uh, they are aluminosilicates so they contain mostly silica and some aluminum. Um, sand is basically silica so you could imagine zeolites being found in nature as well. But uh, the zeolites we use in the lab are uh, their properties are tuned for specific applications mm -hmm. so we don't want to pick zeolites that are available in nature because they may not have the properties that we would like so we synthesize them in the lab using a silica source and a aluminum source and the proportions of the quantities we mix these chemicals in would give us a zeolite with a particular pore size that we want okay so do you make those too or yes i do that, like, make somebody them. else's job <laughs> no uh, our lab specializes in zeolite uh, synthesis uh -huh. and most of our time goes into playing around parameters and synthesizing these zeolites so they are basically made in ovens look similar to kitchen ovens uh, and we have a small autoclave in which we put in everything uh, looks more like a miniature pressure cooker 
uh, which goes into the kitchen oven oven which looks like the kitchen oven and sits there for a number of days and the zeolites cook inside under pressure once they are cooked we take them out and we get the powder zeolite okay yeah and then from there you try to separate it out into those sheets uh yes the way i break them into the sheets is mix them with a liquid polymer um i collaborate with a professor in the polymer science department so my work is slightly linked with polymers as well <laughs> and uh, i mix them with the, with a polymer and the polymer diffuses within the layers and the sheets come apart uh, this is a new process that we developed in my lab where we use a liquid polymer to do this process uh, in the past people have tried to achieve the same same thing using a solid polymer uh, which needs to be melted at high temperature and they used uh, shear force to force this polymer inside that zeolite flower um, and any kind of force and high temperature used uh, would break those sheets into very small size sheets and we would like to retain their size so we don't want force to be applied so the process that we developed in my lab was that I used a liquid polymer instead of a solid polymer and um, I can do the same process uh, at room temperature and with no force so the polymer just merely diffuses I just take a small container mix the zeolite with the polymer stir it for a bit and just leave it for like two minutes and then the sheets just come apart oh. uh, that's that makes the process really easy and uh, yeah so you described the zeolite as like a flower and I've, I have an advantage here over like the listening audience that I came to your art exhibit and saw the pictures so I know Correct. what they look like yes but yeah so it's like uh, it's uh, like this like, rose with yeah. like a lot of layered petals. Yeah, but it's kind of cool. So like you're doing like a microscopic or nanoscopic version of like when you like pull all the petals off of a flower yes. and do that game where you're like, he loves me, he loves me. <laughs> but then, but it has Never a really. Thought about that. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So I guess for context, what are the approximate dimensions of any one of your sheets is on a nanoscale, right? Uh, one of my sheets, the si lateral size is a micron by a micron, uh, and the thickness is two nanometers. Okay. So you can't just hold one of them in your hand. <laughs> no, you, no, really you can, can do it with your fingers, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Could you get like a really tiny pair of tweezers and like... I, I, I <laughs> cannot, can't that? even see them with my naked <laughs> eyes. <so. laughs> it's just as if, if you disperse them in a solution of an organic solvent like toluene, uh, I would just see that solution as a transparent solution yeah. with my naked eyes. Oh, and more. then only under like... TEM, which is transmission electron microscopy, or SEM, scanning electron microscopy, I could actually look at them. So, um, so what, um, what kind of compounds are you filtering for? Like, what is the you said uh, that this is used for? Like, yeah, the current uh, zeolite that 
I work with um, can separate hydrogen from carbon dioxide. So oh. a lot of chemical industries generate these steam uh, streams uh, which contain both carbon dioxide and hydrogen, where hydrogen is a very useful fuel which we would want to recover. And also we don't want carbon dioxide to go into the atmosphere because climate change. So uh, separating CO2 from H2 is a very um, important application. And the zeolite that I work with has a pore size, which is just right in the middle of the sizes of carbon dioxide and hydrogen. So it can allow hydrogen to pass through and not allow carbon dioxide to. Wow. Um, but other zeolites can also do similar um, separations. Some of them can separate liquids. Do you also design zeolites that are used in catalysis? Yes, uh, we also design, so zeolites uh, which are silica um, contain silicon and oxygen. Um, some of the silicons can be replaced by other atoms which are called as heteroatoms. And um, <laughs> as I said, there are a lot of puns in <laughs> And uh, one of such atoms could be aluminum. And once you have some aluminums in that silica matrix, uh, those aluminums can act as uh, centers for catalysis. And Catalysis is basically a catalyst or something that speeds up a reaction. Okay. Uh, so zeolites can be used and which are currently used in a lot of uh, petrochemical reactions. Uh -huh. um, they are used as catalysts and they speed up the reaction so you can have the reaction at a, uh, at a lower temperature and more efficiently. Um, mm. So yeah, we also synthesize, uh, some other group members in my lab also work with synthesizing zeolites, uh, which are used for reactions. Um, and our group specializes in synthesizing chemicals from uh, biomass, which is essentially uh, agricultural waste and plants. Uh, so. Currently, a lot of chemicals are synthesized from fossil fuels uh, or the crude oil. That's how the petrochemical industry works. And uh, we want to switch to entirely, uh, if, if not entirely, partly at least, to renewable sources of energy like biomass or lignocellulosic biomass, which, is, which comes from uh, plants and agricultural waste like corn husk. Uh, so part of my lab also works on uh, using this biomass and synthesizing chemicals from biomass. Nice. So it sounds like a lot of the applications in your lab are to help like make these scientific processes more energy efficient. Yeah. Yeah. yeah earth friendly in general. Correct. Nice. Okay. It's time for the last segment of the show. So the last segment of the show, it's a game I invented called GTA. Guess that acronym. Um, and so how the game works is we're going to give Taylor acronyms provided by my guests, and he is going to try to guess what they mean. 
I feel really good about this. Is the first one aqueous? Is it the whole thing? I need I need the spelling again if it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wouldn't rely on the word aqueous to get you through this. Round. Yeah, that's all I had. I, I wrote it down on my hand. It's gone. <laughs> okay, your first acronym is HIP. H-I-P. HIP. Coming from Sam. I did also say it earlier. <laughs> you did say it earlier, and I know that you said it earlier, and I'm going to get it wrong. Uh, so this is what I think HIP is. Hydrogen in proteins. Ooh, not a bad guy. You're very wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I said it so confidently, though, that I feel like maybe I am right, you know what I mean? Get like half a point, I guess. Okay, I'll take the half a point. What is it? Uh, harnessing interfacial phenomena. Yeah, I was really, that was, that was really wrong. So can you remind us what that is? Right, yeah. So it's the name of the lab I'm in. So we're harnessing interfacial phenomena. So we're looking at the interfaces of like oil and water or like air and water and like how the interface of that, of those two phases will be changed with the polymers. Nice. It just sounds like Avatar stuff. You should have just said that. I would have totally <laughs> got it if you were like air, water, fire, earth. <laughs> I'm like, cool, yeah. Just Iroh. <laughs> Okay, our next acronym is going to come from Robin. It is CSTR. I think that's a trick question. <laughs> I don't think it's actually an acronym. I think it just means like sister. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> like an engineer, but like, you're my sister. You know what I mean? Like friendship, bonding. Bonding, is that what it is? Like bonding? Like, <laughs> Bonding is related, sort of. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, like, uh, yeah like, uh, chemicals staying together, really. <laughs> sis, Honestly, sis, I like sis, that sis. one better. Can we use that for the future? You yes. can use any of the stuff that I provided. <laughs> yeah. uh, nah. Uh, CSCR means continuously stirred tank reactor. And... <laughs> That is a chemical reactor in which fluid or fluid and with reactants it is float in and it flows out. Uh, the flow rates are the same, and there is a stir bar that's in there, and it makes it so that you can have a <coughs> have a reaction vessel that is just continuous throughout. It's all exactly the same because it's mixed perfectly. Nice. It sounds like a slushy machine. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, a slushy machine is a CSTR. Oh, okay, nice. <laughs> really I'm killing it. I'm really, I, I think after this I might get an honorary degree. <laughs> okay, we're going to have an acronym from Sunket. S-A-X-S. S-A-X-S. Sax? Sax. I'm going to go with single acting... Xylophone sheets, baby. Oh, is that what it is? Is it a xylophone sheet? No. Okay. <laughs> All right. Again, it's I was really confident about it. So, it's small angle X-ray scattering, uh, which is basically used to characterize materials. So you hit a particular material with an X-ray beam at low angle, and it is used to study the degree of order in a material or how crystalline the material is. Mm. 
Yeah, I feel like when I think of science, I think of like all of the work that you guys have to do, like all of the studying and all of like the rigorous like academic nature of like your schooling. But every time I talk to scientists, you guys are just like, yeah, no, I make really cool goo that you can just wrap around like anything and it won't get hot no matter what. Or like, yeah, I shoot lasers through stuff just so I can see what it is just for fun. It's called sax. What's up? <laughs> yeah, no, I organized an entire conference just because, you know, I'm gay and so smart. <laughs> You just listened to Lab Talk with Laura on 91.1 FM, WMUA Amherst. I'm your host, Laura Federuso, and my guests today were Sam Marsden, Robin Zollner, and Sanket Sabnis from the OSTEM chapter at UMass Amherst. My co-host was comedian Taylor Ortiz. The jingle at the beginning of our show was written and produced by Matt Woodland. Online hosting of Lab Talk with Laura is provided by the Emmerich Lab in the Polymer Science Department. You can find Lab Talk with Laura on Facebook, on Twitter, SoundCloud, iTunes, or anywhere else that you listen to podcasts. Please check us out. You can hear all of our old episodes. Let us know what you think. You can also catch uh, UMass OSTEM at the Northampton Pride Celebration coming up this Saturday, May 4th in Northampton, Massachusetts. Thank you so much for listening. Stick around for WMUA news coming right up.